0: Welcome to Studio Two on a Wednesday.
1: I'm Cherry Gregg, and I'm Tom McDonald in for Abby wolfman errant
0: Tom, welcome to Studio Two. I'm excited to be working with you well, today.
1: Thank you for having me, and we got to plow right into it because we've got a really busy hour. We Later do. Later in the hour, Philadelphia Police Commissioner Danielle Outlaw joins us to discuss her department's approach to crime in this city what's been successful so far, Mm -hmm. and all of the work that still needs to be done. And we want to hear from you. Send your questions for the commissioner to Studio 2 at WHYY.org.
0: Definitely looking forward to that conversation. And in a few minutes, we'll talk about Lieutenant Governor Sheila Oliver, who passed away yesterday at the age of 71 due to an undisclosed medical condition. And an interesting story on how money has changed the big professional sports teams. But first, Tom, in Studio 2 tradition, will have some top stories first. I'll take the first one. Former President Donald Trump was indicted yesterday, this time for his part in an alleged scheme to overturn the results of the 2020 election, as well as efforts to subvert the results in Pennsylvania, all a you know, as part of that election here in our state. Now this indictment has four counts. It alleges that Trump and unnamed six co-conspirators, they leveled a plan to keep Trump in power in spite of the results of the election. The indictment refers to a tweet by Trump on November 11th of 2020 that calls out former Philadelphia city commissioner Al Schmidt. You probably remember that day we were both covering the election. Al Schmidt, who is also a Republican um. They called him out for saying that there was no evidence of fraud in Philadelphia. Smith is now secretary of the Commonwealth here in Pennsylvania. He testified that he received death threats after those tweets. Prosecutors also claim in the indictment that a co-conspirator orchestrated an event at a hotel in Gettysburg attended by state legislators. And at that event, falsely claimed that Pennsylvania had issued one point eight million absentee ballots, but received Two and a half million ballots in return. All of that was false.
1: And the indictment refers to a meeting between former Trump lawyer Rudy Giuliani, who we think is one of the unindicted co-conspirators and presided over by State Senator Doug Mastriano back in November of 2020 where the two allegedly spent time lodging false claims about the election. Mm -hmm. Now, there's other allegations local to Pennsylvania related to the electors, and it's clear the actions that took place here in the Commonwealth and related to the election in Pennsylvania are part of the indictment. This is just one of a slew of indictments. The others are related to mishandling of classified documents and tax fraud in New York, but this is by far the most serious. Yeah. But this doesn't prevent Trump from running for president.
0: Yeah. So nothing's going to stop it seems like, you know, we'll see what the polls say. This might bolster support among some of his strongest supporters. We'll see.
1: Each indictment has. Yeah. You know, also in the news, we've talked about PFAS or those yeah. dangerous forever chemicals. Our Susan Phillips does a lot of hard she work does. on this. They've found in so many places, including the protective gear that firefighters wear to do Mm. their jobs. Now some members of Congress want us to look for alternatives. The bill introduced by eight representatives, including Pennsylvania Republican Brian Fitzpatrick, calls for $100 million to research and develop firefighting gear that doesn't contain PFAS. The chemicals have been linked to certain cancers and a host of other illnesses. A reason to look at firefighters in particular is that they have that higher chance of dying from cancer than the general public, according to medical studies. And firefighting gear is one of the highest concentrations of PFAS when compared to all other textiles. Throughout the bill, it's called Protecting Firefighters and Advancing State of the Alternatives Act.
0: Yeah. And, you know, this is something that we've talked about on the show before. Uh, Mm -hmm. Tom, and there's another bill in the state house that would hold manufacturers accountable for warnings and labels on equipment. And companies will be required to state when materials include different types of forever chemicals. New Jersey's also been tackling the issue of PFAS in water. Like, this is a big deal. And they're kind of everywhere, and folks don't know how to get rid of it. And we're, and we're working really hard. A lot of focus on this.
1: Will Grove Naval Air Station had a lot of cleanup done because of that.
0: Yeah. And speaking of cleanup, um, the, the, we, you know, this could... We could have cleanup issues after this we've hurricane season. Yes, after this hurricane season coming, because the regional FEMA officials they're asking folks in our area to be prepared for the peak hurricane season because they fear
1: it's going to be a doozy. Our Sophia Schmidt did a story that's yeah. on our website WHYY.org. FEMA officials say they're worried because hurricanes are not as bad as the ones in Florida. Locals are just not prepared. But the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Association, or NOAA, forecast a near-normal Atlantic hurricane season this year. But is anything normal this year? I
0: don't think so. And, and Tom, what's interesting is that, you know, I mean, hurricanes happen and other hurricane reasons all the time. But because they aren't as severe in our region all the time people just aren't ready. They keep
1: calling them 100-year storms and they don't come every 100 years.
0: Yeah, they're coming a lot more often. And what FEMA is recommending is that you develop a plan with your household for where you'd go if you were told to evacuate. Also, put together a home disaster kit and a go-bag with essentials like important documents right medications pet food also download a weather app so you can stay abreast of what's happening and sign up for local emergency alerts because Tom I remember seeing you like I think Hurricane (laughs) Sandy or something like Superstorm Sandy down the shore yeah Yeah. and this stuff can get serious and it could happen to us
1: I have to admit I got my four-wheel drive stuck during Superstorm Sandy I'm glad you said Cost me that. a fortune to get
0: pulled out. At least you have four wheel drive, though. Well, Some of these people are riding around
1: with the two wheels. Everybody can buy a four wheel drive if they win the Mega Millions jackpot. Oh, it's into our final? <laughs> $1.25 <laughs> With a B. I've got my, uh, you know, billion dollars. Yeah. And uh, no one's won the Mega Millions jackpot since April 18th. That's a lot of it's money. one of the largest mm-hmm. in US history, but not the largest. The Mega Millions jackpot was 1.537 billion on October 23, 2018. Wow. One winner from South Carolina.
0: And I just want to put this all in perspective cuz I've been spending about $10 a week. Me too. Pa- paying for these Mega Millions tickets and the chance of winning, the jackpot is about 1 in 300 million. <laughs> <laughs> that's a lot that's not good i think that's that really equals you being
1: struck by lightning and bit by a shark at the same as time as-
0: oh goodness <laughs> well people in the u.s they've spent upward of a hundred billion dollars on lottery tickets in 2021 50 percent of americans buy a lottery ticket at least once a year so we're not alone tom we're not alone
1: everybody does those office pools too
0: yeah so you know just keep trying somebody's going to get that billion if it were me I probably would still come to work, y'all. So you might still hear me. <laughs>
1: so we'll see what happens. Just I remember, million, just no. remember when you win, make sure you don't tell anybody. Oh, make sure the ticket's safe, and consult an attorney.
0: Consult an attorney, yes, and a financial person
1: probably right. too. So
0: now we're going to move on to our newsmaker. Lieutenant Governor Sheila Oliver died yesterday at the age of seventy-one. Joining us right now to talk about her life and her political career is WHYY South Jersey reporter Kenneth Burns. Kenneth, welcome to Studio 2.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: Oliver passed away due to an undisclosed medical issue, but had been dealing with personal health issues for some time. Have you heard anything more about this medical issue? Nothing
2: new in terms of what she was diagnosed with or her health issue. It remains undisclosed at this time. Uh, And as you alluded to, there has been she has had issues uh, uh, off and on in recent memory.
1: And you really haven't seen her much lately, right?
2: That's correct. In fact, she was uh, acting governor uh, at least until Monday morning when they took her to the uh, hospital in Mm -hmm. North Jersey. And uh, suffice to say, the condition must have been bad enough where she couldn't execute the duties of that office. So those duties have transferred and now rest with Senate President Nick Skateri.
0: Yeah, one of the things I found interesting is that um, Oliver was only the second ever lieutenant governor of New Jersey. Um, what were some of her accomplishments since she took over that position in 2018?
2: Right, and let's provide a little bit of context. Lieutenant, having a lieutenant governor in the Garden State is fairly new. It's a uh, It's a mechanism of the last 20 years. The state constitution was actually amended in 2006 to Mm. accommodate what will happen. Uh, Keep that in mind as we talk about this. Uh, As such, she was assigned whatever uh, Governor Murphy gave her to, Governor Phil Murphy. And in her capacity as lieutenant governor, she ran the Department of Community Affairs. That's the agency that helps determine how state government helps the municipalities. More than 500 in New Jersey. And more notably, she oversaw this, she oversaw the state takeover of Atlantic City's municipal government. So she had a hand there and then she stepped in as acting governor. I remember a couple of years ago, she signed a bill in Trenton that would provide some money to help uh, reform juvenile justice in the state.
0: Mm. Wow. And so she did quite a bit as lieutenant governor. And before that, she became well known in the assembly after becoming speaker. She was the first black woman to do that. She also made history when she was elected lieutenant governor, as you mentioned. And here is here she is in her victory speech after winning that election. I hope somewhere in this great state of New Jersey, a young girl of color Is watching tonight and realizing
1: that she does not have a limit to how high she can go. Wow.
0: Powerful words right there. Did did people perceive Lieutenant Governor Oliver as a trailblazer in New Jersey? Kenny?
2: Absolutely. And in fact, I mean, hearing that now even gives me chills to this day. So let's let's walk through this second. Well, second female lieutenant governor overall. The first one was Kim Godana under Governor uh, Chris Murphy or Chris Christie. Just the second woman ever to serve as assembly speaker. The first one was in 1965 wow. and the second black lawmaker after Howard Woodson in 1974 to hold that job. And then on top of that, just the second black woman to lead a state legislative chamber in the country. After Karen Bass in California, she's currently mayor of Los Angeles. And even before that, she was she was active, particularly in Essex County politics. She lived in East Orange for a long time, almost became mayor, but lost by 51 votes. Hmm. And even before she became assembly speaker, she was already a veteran of the assembly, first elected in 2003.
1: So what happens next? About a replacement, Kenneth? Well, sounds like we lost I W.H.Y.Y.'s Kenneth, Kenneth Burns. Burns. So what does happen? Uh, can now? you hear me? Oh, there yes. we go. There we go. What happens next?
2: Uh, bear, bear with me. Sirius fired. Um, as I alluded to, this is new territory. So Governor Murphy has 45 days to pick a successor and it could come from anywhere. It could be a commissioner already in his administration. It can be uh, someone in the legislature. And keep in mind, the legislature is up for re-election, both the Assembly and the Senate. So any one of the legislators could be picked. But either way, the governor has to pick one in 45 days to finish the remaining term of uh, the late Sheila Oliver.
0: Yeah. Have you heard any reaction from folks on this?
2: Oh, from both sides of the aisle. um, I'll give you a taste. Governor Chris Christie posted this on social media. He called it a sad day for New Jersey and for him personally and called her. A great partner. Uh, his predecessor, Governor Murphy, uh, who often referred to Oliver as a partner in government, uh, said the same thing. And she, he also alluded to uh, how much of a trailblazer he or she is. And then, Trend Mayor Reed Gassiora, who was an assemblyman for a long time before uh, leading the capital city, they were uh, best mates in the assembly. And uh, all of them said she was genuine. She was passionate and that she worked across the aisle, and this cannot be overstated enough, a trailblazer in the state of New Jersey.
0: And as we get ready to wrap up, I just want to quickly say she didn't always get along with Governor Chris Christie, but he had a lot of positive things to say.
2: Yes, in fact, uh, you'll find this dynamic. uh, One of the uh, key examples of that was the pension reform, aka Chapter 78, which required uh, public workers to contribute more to the public worker pension system Uh, she crossed the aisle along with steve sweeney the former state senate president to uh, pass that bill cost her politically but she still wound up uh yeah (laughs) criticizing them
0: (laughs) yeah well that trailblazer indeed that's kenneth Burns, south jersey reporter for whyy thanks so much for joining us kenny on studio two
2: thank you for having me
1: coming up philadelphia police commissioner danielle outlaw standing by we'll be right back
3: Supporting WHYY, Penn Medicine, helping to find new cures for cancer. With life-saving clinical trials and advanced surgical techniques, Penn Medicine is offering more hope for patients everywhere. Learn more at penmedicineorg slash cancer. Penn Medicine, what's next?
0: Welcome back to Studio Two. I'm Cherry Gregg. Tom McDonald is with me filling in for Avi today.
1: Cherry, gun violence has plagued Philadelphia for decades, but with the pandemic, the number of shootings and homicides rose even more dramatically as they did in most large cities in America. But this year, for the first time since 2020, we're starting to see a decrease. Homicides in the city are down 22 percent.
0: Yeah, and shootings are down as well. And that's great news. But still this year, so far, 220 people have been killed by guns and 847 have been non-fatally shot. That is far too many people dying or having their lives and their family lives forever altered. So we wanted to look at this decline and talk about what's behind it, what strategies are working and what needs to push And get a little bit better. We've asked Philadelphia Police Commissioner Danielle Outlaw to join us in our studio to talk about guns, crime, and policing in the city. Commissioner Outlaw, welcome to Studio 2. Thank you. Thank you for having me today.
1: And if you want to send us a question for the commissioner, email studio2 at WHYY.org.
0: Yeah, so we just talked about a decline. 20 plus percent. Philadelphia is doing better than some of the major cities when they call when we talking about trending downward on homicides and shootings. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, I want you to talk about what do you think the PPD has done that has worked and that has helped contribute to this decline?
4: I think it's a combination of things. One, I just want to thank you all for acknowledging that there has been a decline. Um, But I think it's a combination of things. uh, First and foremost, I think it's important to underscore uh, how important it is for us to partner with community. Uh, We've been working with folks who've had boots on the ground for a very long time. And I think that's a very essential part with furthering the work that we do once we take enforcement action. Once we make an arrest out there, the community is left to say, "Okay, now what? We still have to address the root causes of why we're seeing this gun violence. And that's when our community groups come in and step up and really assist us. So I want to underscore that before I talk about um, specifically what PPD is doing. But with all of that said, uh, you know, we found as we relate to this year, right, we were seeing some steady declines last year as well. um, But. We're really finding our rhythm, I think, with this year. At the beginning of this year, we recognized, you know, we were using data. We, you would hear me say data and intelligence all the time, right? We we don't have the luxury of just putting a cop on every corner, but we also know that best practices say you got to use the data to, to drive your deployment decisions where are the worst of the worst, right? We know it's a small group of individuals that's driving the largest percentage of the crime. Same thing with hotspots or neighborhoods in the city. So where are those key areas? Who are those key individuals? Who are our shooters? Who are our killers? And are we flooding those areas to address those people? But we found in the beginning of this year that the data changed. So for, uh, you know, in the beginning of 2020, when I came, the data and intelligence told us one thing, but with the pandemic, we know the nature of crime changed. We know mm. it shifted uh, in certain parts of the city. Some of the players weren't necessarily the key players that we were looking for. And so at the beginning of this year, we shifted our deployment efforts in not only focusing on four core districts in the city that were driving citywide violence, but also making sure that we were using Accurate data and intelligence to look at the right people as well. In addition to uh, shifting our efforts there, we created something called a, a shooting investigations group. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of folks know that, you know, from watching the first 48, right, there's homicide detectives or investigators that follow uh, a homicide investigation from the start to the finish, and that's what we see on TV. But the non-fatal shootings weren't necessarily getting that same amount of attention that the homicides were getting. And we know that a lot of our shooters are some of our killers as well, meaning Mm -hmm. just because someone didn't die, you know, from, you know, fortunately uh, from a bullet wound doesn't necessarily mean that the person behind the other, uh, on the other side of the gun didn't have the same intention. They just got lucky in that sense. So by forming that shooting investigations group, those detectives are specifically focused on the non-fatal shootings in their geographic area, but they're getting all the same resources and access whether it's to the DA's office or our federal partners, technology, all of the resources that the homicide investigators are getting so that they, too, can investigate these cases with a fine-tooth comb. Our clearance rates have gone up, not just with our homicide investigations, but also with our non-fatal shootings. And I think that's also served as a deterrent. And then I'll also say, too, we're using our forensics in a very intentional way. Uh, we found that over the last couple of years, um, we are able to use DNA in different ways. And so we began prioritizing very early on um, some of our homicide investigators. And I won't go into detail how we use the DNA, um, but we've been, you know, really pushing our forensic capabilities to the edge and hopefully over the years we'll be able to expand that as well. So there's been quite a few things that we've done differently, refocusing our efforts, making sure that we're intentional about who we stop, uh, where we place ourselves, um, and, and it's paying off. And I, I think for folks to begin to realize that this is a marathon and not a sprint is helpful as well because this didn't happen. These increases that we saw didn't happen mm-hmm. overnight. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to slowly continue to chip away at it, but we're seeing some some really um, positive gains for the work that we're putting in.
1: Now, one of the things that you constantly say, people can't equate real policing to what they see on TV. But you have chipped away at the clearance rates, as you spoke about, how about response times? The response times were criticized by Rebecca Reinhart mm-hmm. before she ran for mayor, and a lot of people are complaining that they're not seeing police officers as quickly as they feel is necessary.
4: Yeah, and, and I think that's a fair question. And, and one, thank you for putting out, out there that, you know, I know I made the first 48 or the TV reference, but it's not always how we see it on on TV. Our response times—we still have some work to do. Uh, you know, our response times are fairly well when it comes to priority one calls, meaning the most serious of the crimes. But we can—but we can do better. I mean, I just recently uh, took a look at them. And it really depends, you know, we measure our response times based off of start to finish, right? When we receive the call, when we arrive on scene, and then how long it takes for us to actually close the call. Mm -hmm. And depending on the gravity of the situation, our one officer or several officers might remain on scene for a very, very long time which means we have less officers uh, to respond to lesser priorities in the city. Now, that's when the question comes in, well, will more officers help with that? Obviously, yes, Yeah. Uh, because we have the ability um, to put more resources in areas where we need them. We have to remember, I mean, we happen to be talking about gun violence right now, but we have to remember that in a city of neighborhoods, each neighborhood has their own priorities, and it might not be gun violence. Some neighborhoods want us to address quality of life issues and they want us to do that right away. But we have to, given that we have the resources that we have, we've had to prioritize the gun violence over the other types of less serious calls.
0: And I want to talk about resources now uh, because we have a lot to cover. And I want to make sure we get to that because you pivoted to that. PPD have faced some major shortages of police officers. Um, You know, officers were retiring out on disability and just lower academy graduation numbers, right? Um, But you've implemented some changes. Um, One was part of that arbitration award from November of last year, where you guys were going to deploy civilians in some cases. How's that working out? So what that did,
4: so for those who don't know, we don't have the ability, I don't have the ability to put officers wherever I want to Mm. contractually, right? Um, Once they... Are assigned to wherever they are, there has to be a legitimate uh, contractual reason for me to move them. So you might hear a lot of leaders talking about putting people in the right seat, put put right people in the right seat, or me being able to shift uh, officers on a permanent basis so I could, you know, focus on whatever the needs of that month are. I don't really get to do that. I can detail officers out, but only for a short period of time. As such, over the years, because contractually, that's the way it's always been, we find ourselves really heavy on the sworn side, but the number of right. support mm-hmm. staff is really, really light, and that's important because when we're looking at budgets or overtime or just the duties of what police officers should do. You know, we ask ourselves, can we put more police officers on the street and have a non-sworn or a civilian person do some of the work of the police officers? The answer is yes. And so and what categories or what areas? So after a lot of back and forth in negotiating for the first time, for example, um, I would say, you know, um, I saw some officers, this is I don't want to say I'm exaggerating, but sometimes you would see officers delivering mail. I don't think that's something that a police officer should do. Um, Graphic design. You know, again, we have some really, really talented police officers that just happen to know how to do other professional or provide other professional services. And so
0: you've moved them to sworn roles and put civilians. Well, over
4: time. Um, that sworn police officers have been in these positions, so I, w- I want to make very clear what the arbitration award allowed us to do is, as people retire out, I can now fill those positions with, mm-hmm. with civilians. So it's not an overnight. Um, okay, you're no longer here. I'm hiring for you know, but. It's helpful because what that allows me to do instead of like what I did in the beginning of the summer, what we all did was yeah. pulling people out of administrative roles, officers, and putting them back on the street. I get to keep officers where I need yeah. them, and then have civilians in place to do some of the administrative help. And if you are
0: just and if you just joined us, we are speaking with Philadelphia Police Commissioner Danielle Outlaw. We're talking about homicides being down twenty two percent in the city. What's working? What's not? Do you have a question for Madam Commissioner? You can email us at studio2 at org.
1: And we do have them coming in right now. Saeed from Northeast Philadelphia. Be gentle, folks. Be gentle. <laughs> <laughs> and the Shemia via email both are asking a similar question. So I'm going to group those two together. And the question is why are we not stopping drivers for violating stop signs, speeding, racing, fake temporary plates? And they're saying it feels like there's no traffic laws in the city.
4: I think that's a fair question, too. The answer is we do, right? But we're talking about volume, one. And then, two, we have to do it in a safe manner. So when, when we're talking, I, I'm assuming they're talking about car meets. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, the weather gets cars. nicer. Cars come together. They gather. Um, the good news is is that over the past two or three weekends, um, when we've had some impromptu gatherings mm-hmm. our officers are able to get there quickly on scene and disperse um, I've been asked questions you know why haven't you used stop strips or thing like things like that we really have to be mindful of the terrain the area when you throw out stop strips or you know The I'm trying to think of the the spike strips, spike strips. Yes, the colloquial way
0: of saying (laughs) it.
4: Right, when you have cars out there doing burnouts or donuts or whatever it is, you have bystanders out there as well. Uh, A car spins out of control. Where does it go? It goes into the crowd or
1: into the officers or into. You had an officer injured recently. Yes.
4: So we have to think about um, some of the safest ways to do that. Um, And then the same thing, you know, with stop sign enforcement and everything else. I mean, we we do what we can when it's in front of us. I think I made very clear um, that just because we don't get you today doesn't mean we're, you know, we're not going to get you tomorrow, which is Mm -hmm. what happened. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of cameras, fortunately, here in the city. Um, But again, if we don't see an immediate result today, it doesn't mean that you're not going to see it later down the road. The biggest challenge for us is volume. It's just the mere volume and
0: making sure that we have the resources
4: to be in the right place at the right time.
0: I want to circle back to the clearance rate because I noticed uh, back in 2020, I think it was in like 36, 37 percent. It's now up to 63 percent. You talked about some of the issues um, surrounding, you know, clearance rate, what, you know, creating this shooting investigations team and all that Um, we have an email from Leah she says "Um, my neighbor's son was shot to death in North Philly in 2014 his murder remains unsolved she says year after year my neighbor has called detectives for any updates though recently he's given up what are the police doing to solve these homicides? Can you talk a little bit more about that and also what they're doing to sort of keep these families who've been waiting year after year after year informed?
4: Yeah, and, and I just want to acknowledge that. I, one, I'm sorry for their loss. And, and two, I know how important it is for families to have closure
0: mm-hmm.
4: or to at least know that the person was responsible is brought to justice. We're lucky on some cases uh, in that all the pieces come together, the pieces of the puzzle come together. In the end, we have to present a strong case for prosecution to the district attorney's office. That means the witnesses have to come forward. Evidence has to be corroborated. Uh, I don't have the percentage off the top of my head, but I can tell you that there's a high number or a high percentage of cases where we know who did it, but we don't have the evidence to corroborate that would stand up in court uh, in order for that person to get charged. So I would say this to the families, please don't give up hope. Um, if you're not getting the um the the responsiveness as as you should get from the assigned detectives contact a supervisor um, don't assume that the supervision knows what's what's going on again caseloads are pretty high but that's no excuse for us not to remain in contact to at least say we have something or here's an update or we don't right uh, I think it's important to remember there's a human being at the other side of a case number so and, and quite frankly the homicide detectives there do an amazing job considering uh, the volume of what they have, but then just the nature of the very work that they do. So I I could only imagine what it would be like for a loved one uh, to not have that sense of closure. But please don't give up on us.
1: Commissioner, what is the department doing now to integrate social service workers when you have a mental health call?
4: So there's uh, right off the bat, so gosh... It might have been 2020, the years. I've only been here for three and a half years. It seems so much longer. Seems like 30 and a half years, right? <laughs> it seems so much <laughs> yes. longer, but we got a lot done very early on. And after our own critical incident, um, we realized that our dispatchers weren't necessarily asking all the right questions right up front. So um, there's prompts or questions that are asked by the dispatchers when, or the call takers when someone dials 911 so we can get as best of a picture as possible of what the situation is. Because a lot of times the officers don't know what they have until they actually get there.
1: Right. And the dispatchers aren't sworn officers. They are not. They're civilians civilians. that have gone through training, but they're not mental health professionals. They're not an officer who understands what it's like on the street. I just want to put that into perspective.
4: That is correct. And in addition to that, in addition to the mental health prompt to help us get a, a bigger because remember, people, when you dial 911, you get a call taker. So they're trying to get all the information, and then they relay that over to a dispatcher who actually sends that information to the police officer. But around the same time that we implemented these mental or, or the prompts or the questions, right, to get certain answers, uh, I requested and got a clinician or a mental um, a, a provider um, in the radio room to help us screen the calls to help us determine what was the most appropriate response. Was it a police officer? Should it be a police officer? Should it now be our behavioral health team, our crisis intervention team? Uh, or should it go to a medical professional um, or, you know, someone that would better be better suited to address the nature of the call now that we know a little bit better what we have at the time when the call comes in? Yeah. So I I think that's been helpful. It's not done everywhere, meaning Mm -hmm. it's not done in all police departments. But I think that's been something beneficial for us because, again, we're police officers that happen to get training in other areas. But there
0: are clinicians that are trained to do this. This is what they do all day, every day. Because police officers have been doing so many different jobs in one job. And if you just joined us, we are speaking with Philadelphia Police Commissioner Danielle Outlaw. Do you have a question for Madam Commissioner? You can email us at studio2 at whyy.org. I want to shift a bit and talk about police accountability. Um, You've shaken up the department a couple of times, been scrutinized on this a little bit because people who have been let go, people who have been disciplined, somehow, some way, find themselves back in the office and actually promoted. Uh, Early on, you talked about early intervention systems. Have you been able to put something in place in your three and a half years to sort of Tackle this issue so that folks who have been let go or disciplined aren't able to continue to move up the ranks?
4: Well, I want to start there. I think that's a really good question, uh, because I think the general public doesn't necessarily know when someone is let go by me or terminated by me or disciplined by me. And they fight it. And my decision is overturned by an arbitrator. I have no say in that whatsoever. What Mm -hmm. the arbitrator says is what the arbitrator says. The arbitration um, process is what it is. And the arbitrator has no contact connection to me or no loyalty or allegiance to me. Um, So whatever the arbitrator decides, whatever that award is. I have to follow
1: that, so but to if, elaborate on that, just to stop you for one sure. second, that's all mandated by the contract that you have with the police officers' union, and it has to be negotiated during negotiations, which are also arbitration correct, correct. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I just wanted to i, w- I want to sh- explain to the listeners that you don't have control of that part of it right, so when the arbitrator mm-hmm. rules, you have to take the officer back and and sometimes these rulings can take years. Sometimes they can take years, and
4: oftentimes it's not only um, the officer comes back with back pay, but their slate has to be made whole. They have to be made whole, and it's wiped clean. So they're promoted because we don't get to consider what happened in the past, right? So once an arbitrator says, nope, or they might have done it, but it wasn't that bad, they should get 1,000 days off being facetious, right? They should get 1,000 days off instead of being terminated. Uh, And by the way, you you can't use this against them moving forward when that's there in writing. It it is what it is. But all of that to say, all is not lost. Right. So going back to, um, you know, the arbitration process at at the beginning of the year that you that you referenced, um, I pushed really hard for and actually got. I don't know if anybody had done this prior to me, but. Push really hard for and was awarded when well, we have something called in most places it's called a disciplinary matrix where mm-hmm. we have a discipline guide right and that serves as something that allows us to be consistent when we're disciplining so if someone is found you know there's a sustained finding for a conduct unbecoming there's a range right first offense second offense third offense and then there's another column there for how long we can consider previous violations of that. And prior to my arrival here, someone could have a sustained finding for something really, really serious, and we can only consider it for a year, yeah. right? So we changed that to say, you know, some of these really egregious ones, EEO violations. You know, we can consider that for the duration of employment. So I found that fixing the system itself of accountability to make sure that when we do get to termination, it's airtight. I think it's something that that's helpful. Can't can't fix the arbitration system. But I think it's important to show that there are some pretty strong systems of accountability put in place internally.
0: We have a message from James who's asking, it seems like the commissioner has an impossible job. How does it feel to have a seemingly impossible job? Quick answer for that one. Uh, quick answer. That <laughs> <is>. <laughs> impossible. You know, I,
4: I, it's funny. It's, it's, when I first got here, I said, I feel like I'm running for an office that doesn't exist. Yeah. Right. And, you know, we step into things when things are at their worst or we're giving these assignments when things are at their worst and they are not quickly turned around. And it's like, oh, see, I told you you couldn't do it. And I've done my best to manage expectations from day one to let me, you know, let folks know I'm not a, a team of one. It's, we're an ecosystem, uh, but it's still very fulfilling work. It's still satisfying, and we've gotten a lot done in the last three and a half years. And
0: a quick follow-up to you, because um, when you started at the PPD, the pandemic hit like a month later, and you weren't able to really hit the streets. How has your ground game and your community relations game changed now that things are open back up and everybody's back to semi-normal?
4: I, you know what? I, I sometimes just get out and walk because I can. Um, And when I I say running away from home, you know, to get out of the office and, and, and it's amazing because I have the ability to get out and connect with community, be at community meetings, all the things, all the warm touch points that didn't exist when I first got here, they're back in stride now. So I have the ability to show up, be seen touch on folks and say you know hey how you doing give me a hug how are you it's been amazing and it's it's been like night and day compared to you know when i first got here and not having the ability to connect
1: all right i have to break in because i i have 30 seconds for you to answer this one do you think that you'll be around in the next administration
4: i don't know um you know i'm gonna keep going until something or somebody tells me to stop obviously it's not my decision uh, to be made but you know we're we're gonna keep on the grind and, and and make it happen i love what i do
0: Yeah. Quick follow-up to that. Um, I know the presumptive nominee is Sherelle Parker. Have you had a chance to build a relationship with her yet?
4: Uh, We've built a relationship prior uh, to her, you know, running for mayor. The the thing is, what folks don't realize is that we don't get to talk. Ethics rules don't allow us Ah. to communicate um, prior to
0: the election, so... It is what it is. It is what it is. By the way, you said you felt like you were walking in your purpose. Do you still feel that way?
4: Absolutely. I absolutely do. And I'm reminded by that. You asked me about, you know, getting out and interacting with community. I'm reminded by that
0: every time I go out and walk amongst folks. So it's been great. Wonderful. That, my friends, has been Philadelphia Police Commissioner Danielle Outlaw. Thank you so much for coming into Studio 2 today.
4: Absolutely.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having me. We've got some breaking news in Pennsylvania right now. A jury in the Pittsburgh synagogue mass shooting trial has chosen the death penalty for the gunman who killed 11 worshipers in 2018.
0: Yeah, and we talked about the trial a few weeks ago while the jury was deliberating that sentence. NPR will have more on that outcome later today.
1: Coming up next, Cherry, we're talking about the future of professional sports. Lots
0: to come on Studio 2. Stick with us.
3: Supporting W H Y Y Pen Medicine, helping to find new cures for cancer. With life-saving clinical trials and advanced surgical techniques, Pen Medicine is offering more hope for patients everywhere. Learn more at penmedicine.org/slash cancer. Pen Medicine, what's next?
4: Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.
1: Welcome back to Studio 2. I'm Cherry Gregg. And I'm Tom McDonald. In for Avi today, a visit to the ballpark used to mean sticky floors and stale (laughs) hot dogs. Trust me, I've had a few. (laughs) That was old-school fan experience, and it wasn't for everyone. But if you take a trip to Citizens Bank Park today, it's hard to complain. You get decent food, Mm -hmm. comfortable seats, lots of amenities, and even a mini wiffle ball stadium inside the venue. Oh,
0: I'm going in a few days. Can't wait. I can't wait to see that. But there's so much more money in pro sports these days. The franchises themselves are like well-oiled machines geared toward massive profits. And that's the argument made by journalist Bruce Schofeld in his new book, Game of Edges. He says a new generation of sports owners has used business savvy and advanced number crunching to improve the fan experience. But he also worries that they've taken the soul out of sports. And he talked to my co-host, the one and only, Avi Wolfman Arendt.
3: Start by telling me about how you define the owner of the past, the typical old school sports franchise owner. How did they think? How did they operate?
5: But the vast majority of them were people who were on, as as a lot of them like to call it, the back nine. They'd made their money in the first half of their lives, and now they're going to spend it, do something fun with it in the second half. Odds are I'll be able to sell it for at least as much as I bought it. That was the philosophy of owners in the 80s, 90s, into the 2000s.
3: So what changed and why?
5: What changed was the valuation of these franchises. And there are a few reasons, but the simplest one is just, it's just scarcity. The, you know, the great American migration westward had created a lot of major league markets that needed to be filled with major league teams, Phoenix, Denver, Seattle, San Diego. That was done by about 2000. So they weren't making any more of these teams. And, and the pool of people who were getting rich enough to own them was growing and growing. And over the years, people began to be smarter as to how they ran these businesses, And the businesses, which were eminently worth running well, reacted positively to being run in a more intelligent way, and they gained even more value. And that's when new owners, new type of owners came in.
3: So give me a sense when you say run more intelligently what you mean. And I'll anchor this with John Henry, who uh, Mm -hmm. runs the group that owns the Red Sox and some other properties How does someone like John Henry run his business more intelligently than the owners of the past?
5: John Henry made his money um, in soybean futures and ran his businesses using algorithms and, and using analytics. He realized that if he was running his soybean futures using these tools, it would make sense to run his expensive new acquisition the same way and that led to a lot of things both on and off the field that meant changing the way you priced your tickets and changing the the relationship you had with the fans and that led to revenue streams they were one of the first teams for example that where you could rent out a boardroom in the in Fenway Park to have your your company meeting there or to have your kids birthday party and that does a few things you know it gives them a little bit of income but it also Kids who go to a birthday party at Fenway with all the Red Sox stuff around, seven, eight-year-olds going to a birthday party, they're fans for life.
3: Now, Bruce, I'm imagining some old guard owner listening to you and thinking, wait a second. These folks that owned these franchises in the 70s, 80s, and 90s presided over a period in which the growth of these leagues was astronomical. Some of them, like the NBA, went from barely even getting national exposure in games to generating billions and billions in revenue. Was the old guard simply lucky? They just came around at the right time?
5: No, and I I think let's turn that inside out because one of the interesting ramifications of what all these new owners have done is to to create businesses that while they may be operating at a higher efficiency than they used to a little bit of the charm and the humanity of them is lost and that's that's a crucial point if you are a lifelong phillies fan and you and the phillies don't win for a decade and you go to games and you say oh my gosh the parking lot getting out of the parking lot is ridiculous and the food's terrible and and i can't believe they traded my favorite player but what can you do? You're a Phillies fan. It's like saying my sister annoys me so much, but you know, she's my sister. (laughs) Yeah. If you make it about this nice, but charmless experience, then you're, you're banking on that to cement the relationship. And if that's all it is, when you don't have such a good experience you say, well, wait a minute, why am I a fan of this team? Or why do I care about this team? It, It sounds, it sounds Perverse because what we talked about a minute ago was John Henry cementing that relationship, making you, meeting you in terms of the emotional attachment. But these teams have gone from being like the the lovable but but kind of quirky and sometimes inept corner grocery that you go to all the time to the Apple store. And the Apple store is better in a lot of ways, right? It's it's much more functional, much more professional, sleek, beautiful. But it's somehow soulless. You know, you could almost walk in with your eyes closed into an NBA arena or a a major league baseball stadium and say, "Okay, here's the barbecue place from the the, with the guy who they brought in from Main Street. And here's the you know, there's a standard issue. Everything.
3: What you just said reminded me of uh, growing up at Camden Yards, going to games, seeing the Orioles, the Baltimore Orioles. And they had a a food vendor called Boog's BBQ um, and Mm -hmm. Boog Powell was a former player of the Orioles. And I guess you're supposed to think that these are Boog's recipes or whatever being served at Boog's BBQ inside the ballpark. Now, if you go to the Phillies game, they have something called Bulls BBQ, which is named after a former Phillies player, Greg Luzinski, mm-hmm. and it's, the, it's yep. the exact same concept that you're supposed to think these are Greg Luzinski's, I guess, barbecue creations. That does seem like a like a, an instance of the copycatting that you're talking about.
5: Yeah, and I was just in, in Anaheim at in Angel Stadium, and they have their own version of that. And And again, you know, it's better to have it than to not. Right. If you go to a game, the barbecue is pretty good in most of these cases. And, it's you know, and it's and it's a fun local tie and it makes you think of your, you know, of of a player of the past. But, yeah, if every team has it, it's it's a little bit hoaxy. You know, it's a little bit fake. And I do think there's that kind of almost disnification of the experience that leads you a little bit away from the reason we all fell in love with sports, which is the guys on the field playing the game and and are they going to win or lose?
3: You mentioned earlier that this new generation of owners is very good at identifying potential revenue streams and then juicing the lemon until there's no juice left. And they seem to have seized upon sports gambling as the next frontier. Why have they seized on sports gambling as the next frontier and what does that mean for the industry?
5: Well, the why is simple. You know, when, you're, when your valuations of your business are two, three, four, five billion dollars, you need a substantial amount of growth to keep, to keep feeding that fire. And especially in an era in which broadcast television fees are stagnant or maybe soon uh, almost about to be a thing of the past as more, more and more people cut cords or never have cords to begin with. Where does that extra revenue come from? Gambling is insidious. You know, a Saturday night game between two teams at the bottom on 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 ESPN that you'd never watch because it's not your team and you don't care about it. Well, wait a minute. All of a sudden, if you have a bet on that game, now it's, you know, it's must-see TV, right? It's not, it's not, and, and, the, and those, that fourth quarter, you say, well, the, you know, clearly the Sixers are going to win. Let's just turn this off. They're up by 30. But wait a minute, I have a bet. I just made a bet just now on my handheld on who's gonna score the most points in the fourth quarter. And that's great short term. It creates interest where there was none. But again, are people that grow up with that connection to the sport really sports fans? There are some voices within the leagues now that are saying we may have kind of killed what made sports so much fun and so, so unique in, in, uh, in the world of entertainment.
3: That is Bruce Schoenfeld, author of Game of Edges, The Analytics Revolution and the Future of Professional Sports. Bruce, it was a pleasure talking with you.
5: Abby, thank you so much. What a treat.
3: And that was my co host, Abby Wolfman.
0: Aaron, thank you so much for that interview. Well, that is it for Studio 2 today. Our producers are Debbie Builder, Paige Murray Bessler, and Andreas Copes. Al Banks is our engineer. Thank you so much, Tom McDonald. Thank you. filling in for Avi. From Studio 2 at WHYY in Philly, I'm Cherry Gregg.
1: And I'm Tom McDonald. Thanks for joining us.